So getting that email was devastating. I remember like curling up in my bed and crying for like a day and then realizing, okay, that that didn't happen. What's next? Welcome to Better For It, a new podcast from The Globe and Mail about how our failures shape us. I'm your host, Timur Durrani, business and technology reporter for The Globe. This week's guest is Jen Harper, founder of the Indigenous-owned cosmetics company Cheekbone Beauty. Ten years ago, the idea of being the CEO of her own company wasn't something even remotely on Jen's radar. But several personal struggles and tragedies changed the path of her life and inspired her to found Cheekbone back in 2015. Since then, the company has opened an office, hired a staff, including a full-time chemist, and has products on shelves in multiple stores across Canada. Jen, who is an Anishinaabe Ojibwe woman, also wants to give back to her community through her work. She donates a percentage of all revenue to organizations that empower Indigenous youth. In 2019, Jen appeared in an episode of Dragon's Den, where she pitched her business to a group of prominent cash-heavy moguls. Spoiler, she didn't walk away with a new investor, though she did learn some valuable lessons in the process. But the real crushing defeat? Getting turned down by one of the most recognizable names in the beauty industry. Today, Jen and I talk about how Cheekbone was born out of grief, why inexperience can be an asset, and the struggles Indigenous entrepreneurs face in building and growing a business. You know, you started Cheekbone Beauty in 2015. Where were you at both personally and professionally at that point in your life? Well, thankfully, I was finally sober. And I think at the beginning of a really incredible journey into sobriety, but that was really new. I got sober November 26, 2014. Professionally, I was selling seafood. I was selling fish at the time. And that really opened up my eyes, I think, to the world of sales and marketing and products and product development and really built some incredible relationships with uh, people who I still call friends today, many, many chefs, restaurant owners, hotel owners, and uh, then entered it into a whole new world in the beauty industry, which is completely different, but similar in so many ways. When I think back, I'm like, how did, you know, it's just not, I, I was not familiar with this industry whatsoever. And, and the fact that I've built a brand in it is um, sometimes seems a bit unreal, especially without that kind of experience. And then I think about it in the way that possibly being that naive and not knowing enough about it is maybe the only reason we've succeeded thus far. (laughs) Hmm. Tell me about the first year of the company. What were the things you needed to figure out during that time? Yeah. So often people say, well, how did somebody who doesn't know anything about this industry get into this space and start a business? And, you know, I I really look at it through this lens because of globalization. I think anyone like it's really um, and people get mad at me because I use this word, but it was easy. It wasn't as hard as you would think. There's manufacturers all around the world. We chose to work with ones from Canada that will put your logo on a product on packaging that already exists for them. They sell that already to a ton of other customers, but then you can call yourself a brand and you can have an item to put into the world. And so it's called 
private white label. And that's how we had to start. Um, but then when I spent a couple years in the industry, I realized and recognized we need to literally give them some transparency here and some better answers. And we knew that if we continue to work in this, in this way with private labelers, we would never be able to be fully, um, 100% honest and transparent with our community. And so I had this idea, went to our investors that and said, look, I think to build a brand that's really sustainably focused and sustainably minded, we're going to need to be um, closer to the, the formulation side of things and really understand ingredients and where they come from in the world. And so I started working with contract chemists and contract labs and got really frustrated in that process and then met somebody who's really, you know, a pivotal partner in this whole journey. Doug Langmere, who started a brand called Bite Beauty in Canada, and he knew firsthand that it's possible to formulate and make products in your own lab and facilities. Mm. And so without his input, obviously, I would have not had that kind of inside information. And he eventually sold to Sephora. So having that kind of insights and information was was really critical in us building our own lab, hiring our own chemists and really trying to figure out, is it possible that we can make our own formulations? And we did. We started with a lipstick you were getting started with no experience working in cosmetics and with fairly little knowledge of the sector. What made you think this was the right move? That is a great question. And, you know, I think of this as I had just overcome addiction. Mm. like, And that is, honest to goodness, a mountain-like obstacle. And so overcoming alcoholism and being newly sober, I really, honestly, I don't know where this came from, but it was like, well, if I can do that, I feel like I can do just about anything. So I was armed with that power. And then also clearly with this new life, um, had a lot of free time on my hands. And I read a book in 2014, on this sobriety or recovery journey. And I was still struggling, but at the beginning of the year, I read a book called The Power of Habit by Dr. Charles Duhigg. And what I love about this book is one, he explains our brains and how they worked. And I knew if I created a new pathway, um, which for me became this business versus the addiction, that I would be able to overcome the addiction because you have to replace it with something. It can't just be this, this sort of empty space. The pathway has to be rebuilt, if you will. And so I think for me, that's definitely all of my energy and focus went away from the addiction into building the business. And then in 2016, just before launching that online store, I lost my brother to suicide. And I firmly believe that this painful experience really what is what kept me going as well because now I had an even bigger purpose of why the brand needed to succeed and why I still to this day he's a big part of why it needs to succeed there's so many situations that we shared prior to his death that just helped me recognize how much our communities need um, hope and inspiration and so that's why you know I know I why I work so personally so hard on the business and on the brand because I know that if we're going to inspire these next generations, then and, and our brand can be a part of that, um, working hard is, is to maintain and make sure it still exists. Cheekbone was born out of a very difficult period of your life. But like you said, it gave you purpose when you needed it. What was driving you during those first few years of the company? 
Yeah, I think first on that vision board was Sephora. Um, having them as a partner, I knew they were the largest beauty retailer in the world globally. So like they had the biggest footprint and I knew that they had the power to build brands. I was, I had read something about that and they had accelerator programs. And so I was really dead set on, on building that and having that on the vision board and as part of the plan for cheekbone beauty. Um, and I think one of the biggest sort of goals for the brand has always been this idea of a global platform and presence Indigenous people make up 370 million globally. We come from all continents um, and all different kinds of communities. And then we share a lot of the same stories about pain and loss um, and suffering because of colonization around the world. And mm. so, um, and b- sort of being displaced and identity struggles and um, having things taken away. And so because of that, our stories are very similar. I've had the opportunity to work with Indigenous communities in New Zealand and Australia and South America and hearing so many of the similarities to our situations that I feel like if an Indigenous person saw this brand anywhere in the world, I would, you know, be really proud for them to say, oh, another Indigenous person that comes from a community like me built this and did this. And so I think always having that in in sort of the, as the North Star of the brand vision has been really important to, to, to me and to us to push it that far. Um, and then, uh, of course, just for the product development side of things, you know, in those early days, we didn't, I, our products were not what they are now. And so just, I think, continuing to push the envelope in terms of the products and how can we truly make things sustainable? Is this even possible in this consumer goods space? And, space? and I think pushing the envelope with those kinds of um, questions and questioning everything we do all the time is only going to make us better. And I feel like I'm, I'm, grateful that we've had the opportunity to do that with our brand. Mm. Tell me about the Sephora Accelerator program. Well, I never got in. I did apply Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I got rejected, which was like super painful. And, you know, literally was like, I, one of those situations where you think you you're getting in this and that you had this thing and nope. So getting that email was devastating. I remember like curling up in my bed and crying for like a day and then realizing, okay, that didn't happen. What's next? Um, They said no. And then it would be every few months I would start sending that's, so that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go find a chemist. I'm going to use these labs and we're going to start making this lipstick. And that's when we started making the sustained lipstick. But something really unique happened. I stayed in contact with their team and really just started saying, like asking, and I remember meeting them in in their boardroom in, in Toronto or in Mississauga. It used to be near the airport. Now they're downtown, but, um, and just asking questions and really realizing, okay, the brand that we had started with, like I told you, those first three years of those private label products, they were really clear that's not going to be successful because anybody can do that. And I would send samples. And then this went on for well over almost a year, every month, like a sample. And finally, in January of 2021, 
got just this random message that we're ready to launch your brand in Sephora.ca in September 2021. And I was like, what? Like, so anyway, it did kind of come as a surprise, but I mean, this is what you're pushing for. But when you finally get that, yes, um, it's huge. But it was like a year of like shipping this lipstick and it would have been like, no, it's too dry and doesn't have the right lip feel. And, and so then just tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. And, and that happened for a year. And then, so by the time we got in Sephora.ca, only in the .ca, which that does matter because it's not definitely, you're not being seen by nearly as many people or, or touched and felt. So that happened in September, 2021. And now by May 19th this year, we'll be in 52 Sephora locations with 26 items, which this, Mm. this is a really big deal because this, this is going to prove if our if our brand can exist in, in Sephora. And so we're only in Sephora, Canada, which is really small. Like just, I need, sometimes people, I think, think we're sleeping on piles of cash, especially the influencer world when they're like, we're going to charge you X amount of, I'm like, we're really a tiny, small brand. So we do not have that kind of marketing budget. But um, yeah, so Canada's population is the same size of the state of California and we're only mm. in Sephora, Canada. And so it is not, a huge deal anymore in my mind that we're in Sephora. People are like, you're in Sephora. I'm like, we need to be in Sephora USA for this to actually matter. Um, and so that's what we're pushing for. But, you know, I love Sephora Canada. They really, I think, see the value of the Indigenous narrative, but that's uh, not felt yet in the United States. So hopefully soon. I want to talk a little bit about your appearance on Dragon's Den. What were you hoping to gain from that experience? Yeah, um, really fun. Like the producers of the show, like it's just so great to work with them. They were wonderful people. The dragons themselves were so kind and, uh, you know, spent an hour in that room taping with them and got to hear really good feedback, which is really important. Like when you're building something, you need to know what's wrong with it in order to make it better. Um, And so that was an incredible experience. And it was such a great marketing opportunity. Like it really, truly was. And I think that's when we really began to see growth, especially with our Canadian audience. Like that was huge. We were doing like a 60-40 split business before Dragon's Den. And then for like a few years after, we were definitely like 80% Canadian business, 20% US. But now we're flowing back out because we're growing more in the US now as well. But that really pushed our Canadian audience for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out from watching that episode of Dragon's Den was that uh, one of the dragons called Cheekbone a mission rather than a company. How do you feel about that characterization now? I, you know what? I will always say she's absolutely right because we are so mission driven. Now, what I love is can the consumer world really start to support mission-driven brands versus conglomerates that exist for, you know, corporate responsibility? I'll do that in quotes because that's an afterthought, right? Like mission-driven brands exist for a whole different reason. Um, but the consumer, we get to decide what we're supporting in this world and the kind of world we want to live in by the things we support. And so I think we're living in a time where we're going to see a shift and maybe mission-driven can be a very healthy business at the same time. I know it can. We've seen incredible brands do that. I think it's possible, but what do I know? 
You know, two others suggested there, two other dragons suggested that you weren't quite ready. Looking back on that experience, do you agree? Absolutely. That was lit. like, when I look back and know what I know now about our investment partners and invest the investing side of things and giving up equity, it was the best advice I could possibly ever hear. But I didn't know what it meant then. I'm telling the truth. Like I'm doing this with no experience and learning as, as we grow. And so realizing like how critical it is to when you're giving up equity and if you give up too much too soon, that it's, uh, it can be very detrimental to a, to a company. Yeah, because I mean, you admitted that yourself that, you know, you were probably a bit naive and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Do you think that lack of understanding when you were sort of starting out in the beauty industry of what you were getting yourself into helped in a way, actually, you know, for you to learn this industry? Uh, absolutely. Like, when you don't know anything, I'm looking at this through a completely different lens. And, you know, the folks in the space, so much experience, so much tenure, um, they know how these things run, like whether it's the machine side of things like in finance and how to fund it properly and how to finance it and and what success looks like in terms of like a, the, the sort of financial strategy, uh, even the marketing side of things, they know what works and where to put dollars and where not to. I mean, I think the digital world has shifted that up for even the most experienced beauty veterans, but they're definitely coming at it through through a space where they there's maybe no room to see something new or different and and the power of what that could mean. And I think that has certainly been helpful in our in our brand's case. But again, you know, it's I think every brand and every company needs experience and vision at the same time. So did you get what you hoped for out of the Dragon's Den experience? Yeah, I think so. What most people don't know is I had the term sheet from Raven Capital prior mm. to going into the taping, so I knew we were gonna we were gonna be okay without any investment in the the, the dragons, and I knew the term offer from Raven was a much better deal than you know what I was even going in and asking for. So we definitely realized that we would be utilizing this for a marketing experience, not an investment experience. For those who don't know, what's a term sheet? Yeah, so that is um, an investor would literally almost send you a list of the offer that they're going to make you to to be a part of your business. And what Ravens was was three hundred and fifty thousand for um, no equity. It's called mm. convertible debt. So this is taking on debt but with the potential of that debt becoming equity at some point. And then that's that's our partnership with Raven now. They're now one of our investment partners that own um, some equity in the brand. What do you think of Canada's venture environment? What was the experience like of trying to get new investors? Yeah, I feel like there's definitely, um, you know, these are like, big conversations in the United States and there's so many funds and so many different kinds of funds. And I think we're, we're really, you know, I don't know enough about the Canadian landscape in terms of VC funding or even like Raven is called social impact funding. So they really don't even put themselves in that, in that category. Um, I was fortunate that Raven was a startup at the same time we were. They're the first Indigenous-led fund. Um, mm. So it's not like I did any investigation on what other potential offers were there. I just, I really did hear a lot of horror stories when it came to VC funding. 
you know, they really, they'll pick 10 businesses and they really only know maybe one or two will succeed and the rest are going to fail and how much time and effort they put into supporting them is not a lot. And when I spoke with Raven, our values really aligned in the sense that they are picking 10 businesses, but they're going to try to support them all to succeed um, for the long haul. And it doesn't have to be a short, like five-year term, um, or it could be something longer. Like, ten, like there was so many different options in terms of our conversation where it's like, the, it wasn't the 10X, like, and that's what for everyone, like a VC wants a 10X return on their investment in your business. And they want that fast, right? Um, and that's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. And I can imagine the horror stories I've had heard is and what this does to the entrepreneur, right? And you really don't become as focused anymore on your vision. You're now really sort of like chained to a spreadsheet in order to make those things happen. And that's not easy to do. I'm just recognizing how hard that is to 10x a company in five years. Like that's just, it feels impossible sometimes. And so finding an investor that's aligned with our values was critical, right? And, and, and of course, once you reach investment, you know that there's a point where this, the people you're working with will want some kind of an exit. And so what that looks like is, would we be ready to buy back all of our shares and just grow on our own? Or will there be another new buyer to take on their shares and then help support us grow to the next level? Like, or like the ors and the ifs, there's so many options, which I think is really cool, which I've learned along the way is like, could we be a brand that becomes a publicly traded company? Like, uh, you know, I have a friend who works for the TSX in Toronto. She's like, Mm. I envision cheekbone becoming the first indigenous woman to like become I'm like okay like slow down like let's just grow at a at a healthy reliable rate first but um yeah and when you're building a business that has impact you have to really look at those spreadsheets a lot differently and I don't know any VC in the world that loves hearing that we're B Corp and wants to hear that people and planet become for profits because that's generally not the kind of conversations you're, you're having with traditional VCs. Who were you leaning on for help or advice? Did anyone try to caution you about the risk involved? Hmm. I, I, you know, I feel sometimes I really, truly am just super fortunate. Um, I've had so many great people come and support Cheekbone. And knowing that I don't know a lot of things, I've had a lot of incredible advisors. We have a board, um, as mentioned, the founder of another beauty brand sits on our board and has advised us. I now have support from uh, the the gentleman who built Manitoba Mucklucks. Like I, you know, there's, I just feel so well looked after when it comes to advisors and supports that, um, yeah, I know how rare that is. And I feel so fortunate that I can lean on so many people for advice. This is a question I want to ask because as a brown guy, I find, you know, and I'm a mixed brown guy too. So I find a lot of people try to tell stories and then they feel like they have an ownership of a community when they tell that story. Uh, and you, you know, brought up that, especially certainly within Indigenous communities, when people start telling stories, it st- feels like it's the wrong person sometimes saying it and representing on behalf of a whole group, right? How do you feel about that? 
Yeah, this one's tough just because, you know, even me telling my story of this is the Jen Harper story. I'm an Indigenous woman, but I'm also a mixed Indigenous woman. So I feel like, yeah, we all have our own stories. But I think what you're asking more so is about the brands that, you know, and I'm not going to name names, but there's major brands even that use some terminologies like our seven generations teaching, like Mm -hmm. hint, hint, right? So, and that, that their name even came from an Indigenous community. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it feels funny. It doesn't feel right. Let me just lay it like that. I think that's the most simple way to put it. It doesn't feel right when someone else is taking ownership of things that come from your culture or your community. And I feel that way, not only about um, my Indigenous community, but other communities as well. Well, now when I'm recognizing, I'm like, hey, why is that? That just feels weird. It feels icky and weird. If a young entrepreneur came to you and was thinking about starting their own business, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think this advice was given to me, but just I think the why your business exists needs to be tied with the passion you have for it. Um, otherwise, you will feel like, what am I doing this all for? And and for me, it's very personal. And I think that's what certainly has kept me going because this is not easy. This is really, really hard. And um and, and someone said this before, and I get it so much now. It is so easy to build a million dollar company. It's really hard to build a $10 million company and then anything after that. Um, and that's what I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're like, Oh, wow, I'm doing this and this is working. And then all of a sudden you're like, it just, it, that's, it is like, like such a pivotal point where you're like, this is now getting really, really hard to, to keep scaling and growing. Um, but yeah, I think that idea of just recognizing um, how hard it is and that if that why is not and that purpose is not like totally apparent or honed in on it, it would be even way harder. I, I don't even know how I would do this if, if I didn't have such a greater purpose behind the brand. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. This was this was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. On the next episode of Better For It. Because you actually can't get better if you don't believe that you're worth getting better. Like mm. it's it's kind of this self-perpetuating prophecy. That was Joanna Griffiths, founder and CEO of NYX, the incredibly popular women's underwear and apparel brand. Joanna and I talk about her unconventional path to entrepreneurship, the challenges of raising money in a male-dominated venture capital space, and why the time was right to sell the company that she built. Better For It is produced by Kyle Fulton. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with all your friends. Until next time, you can find more business-related stories at theglobeandmail.com, and you can listen to our other episodes on your favorite podcast app. I'm Tamor Durrani. Talk to you soon. <laughs>